Alberta Jones was a trailblazer in her time. She was the first black woman in the state of Kentucky to pass the bar. She was the first woman of any race to be appointed county attorney in Louisville. She led the charge on desegregation efforts. She founded a financial company so that black people could get loans, which they were denied at the time by banks. Basically just a civil rights icon. Alberta Jones may have become a household name by now, but in 1965, tragedy struck. 34-year-old Alberta was found dead. She had been beaten and thrown from the side of a bridge in Louisville. There's no shortage of motive in this case. Alberta was a successful black woman in Kentucky in 1965. And not only that, but Alberta was making waves in the city of Louisville. Her work to empower and mobilize black voters had shook up local politics in Louisville already. And at the time of her death, Alberta was working as a prosecutor and was often responsible for prosecuting white men in domestic violence cases. Somebody wanted Alberta dead. The question is who? Alberta was once told that she already had two strikes against her because she was a woman and because she was black. To which Alberta said that she had seen people with two strikes against them hit a home run. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at the extraordinary life of Alberta Jones. And we're going to take a look at the circumstances of her murder, which to this day remains unsolved. My name is Emma, and this is Law Ain't Order. Systematic oppression through the lens of individual stories. Before we start the story, let's get situated in the year 1930, when Alberta was born. Mahatma Gandhi was beginning his eventual 200-mile protest march against the British government. The first FIFA World Cup took place in Uruguay. The Nazi party was beginning their rise to power in Germany. And back here in the States, the Great Depression officially began in 1930, when President Hubert Herber asked Congress for money to create jobs and stimulate the economy. On a lighter note, this was also the year that Mickey Mouse and Betty Boop debuted. The most popular movie was All Quiet on the Western Front. The most popular song was Happy Days Are Here Again. Like every other crisis in American history, the Great Depression would place undue hardship on the Black community over the next decade. Despite Black unemployment being two to three times higher than white unemployment, Black people on average received less government aid and were often turned away from soup kitchens and other such charities. Jim Crow laws were still in full effect. The movement for desegregation had only just begun the year before, in 1929. But it would take a long time for that movement to make an impact in Louisville, where Alberta was born and where she would spend a majority of her life. For example, even by 1975, 21 years after the Brown v. Board decision and 25 years after Alberta was born, Louisville schools were still struggling to integrate. 
Alberta Jones was born November 12th to parents Sadie Crawford and Odell Jones. Her family lived on the west side of Louisville. Alberta was a kind-hearted person, and she was a mama's girl. And uh, definitely my mother could not be 15 feet away from her unless she was hollering, Mama! <laughs> you know. That's Alberta's younger sister, Flora. These clips are from an ABC interview. She was a good sister, a very good sister. Alberta attended Louisville Central High School and then went on to the Municipal College for Negroes, a branch of the University of Louisville, where she graduated third in her class. In 1956, Alberta became the first black student at the University of Louisville Law School. She transferred to Howard Law and graduated in 1958, again at the top of her class. In 1959, Alberta became the first black woman in the state of Kentucky to pass the bar, something she didn't even realize until after the fact. When she passed the bar, she had no idea that she had was the first black female in the state of Kentucky that ever passed the bar. It took the Louisville uh, Times reporter to call her to want to know if he could interview her. And she said, what are you talking about? And he said, I was in Frankfurt. And after searching the records, you are the first. And her statement was, really? If I'd known that, I'd worn something different. (laughs) When she finished her education, Alberta came home to Louisville and opened a successful law office. Within two years, Alberta graduated law school, took the bar, and opened her own firm. And all of that before she was even 30. That would be impressive for someone now. But Alberta really had an uphill battle to get where she was at that time as a black woman in the 50s and 60s. Not only was she operating in spaces where she faced massive discrimination, she was unapologetically successful, which put an even bigger target on her back. Alberta was at the forefront of the desegregation movement in Louisville, She worked to integrate housing, schools, lunch counters, movie theaters, department stores. She also started a finance company, specifically because Black people in and around Louisville were often unable to get home loans. In 1960, a year after she opened her firm, Alberta became the first attorney for boxer Cassius Clay, otherwise known as Muhammad Ali. You know, she uh, flew with him to... California to uh, train under Archie Moore, mm-hmm. uh, you know. She went with him to Brown's Brothers to get his first pink Cadillac. As his attorney, Alberta looked out for his long-term well-being. As part of this contract, she negotiated that some of his money would be placed into a trust that he would gain access to at 35. She was concerned, reasonably so, about him as a young athlete, making a lot of money fast and then blowing a lot of money fast. And, that, and it kind of upsets me about that because you don't hear about her being his law. You don't hear yeah. about her doing the things that she, you know, did. You know, you hear about the white lawyer that he got later, but you don't hear about what she did for Muhammad Ali. That same year, 1960, Alberta established the Independent Voters Association, or IVA. Her point in doing this was to organize Black voters to have their demands met 
by disconnecting from the Democrat-Republican binary. In the aftermath of the Great Depression, around the time Alberta was born, Black voters began moving en masse to the Democratic Party. But it seems like Alberta could see that movement for what it was, a shift from one side of a broken political system to the other. Being unbossed and unbought by either party would give Black voters leverage. She was into a lot of civil rights. Um, and so her thing was she wanted to train uh, the black race to vote for the person and not the, and, 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 and not the party. Among other efforts, Alberta rented voting machines and held classes in her office. She empowered people to vote by walking them through the steps of voting and navigating the machine. So she rented with took her money and rented voting machines to teach them how that they didn't have to vote a straight party. It was such a good strategy. Voting, both then and now, is intentionally difficult. They don't want people to be able to make their way through the bureaucracy and actually be able to vote, and they especially don't want Black people to vote. Within the first year of IVA, Alberta registered an estimated 6,000 voters, and these efforts paid off. In 1961, Black voters played a large role in a political upset in Louisville. In that year's election, the mayor and several city aldermen were ousted. Over the next couple years, Alberta was involved in movements like the March on Washington, led by MLK, as well as civil rights marches held in Louisville. In 1964, she was appointed city attorney, the first woman of any race to fill that seat. And in 1965, Alberta was appointed prosecutor for the Domestic Relations Court. But tragically, at the age of 34, Alberta's remarkable life was cut short. On the night of August 4, 1965, Alberta was at home with her mom and sister when she got a phone call. It was a friend named Gladys, who Alberta was helping with a lawsuit. Gladys wanted Alberta to come over and talk about the case but Alberta told her that there really wasn't anything she could do that night. It was already 10 p.m., but that she would come by in the morning. But Gladys didn't take no for an answer. That she did not want her friends that were less educated than her to think that she was above them. So she said, since you got this position, you have gotten so uppity that you don't have any time for your friends. And Alberta said, okay, I'm, on, I, I, I'm coming. So Alberta relented and agreed to go meet with her. Her mom offered to go with her, but Alberta was like, no, no, this meeting might take a while. It's already late. I'll see you in the morning. And before she left, Alberta and her sister Flora had a haunting exchange. I left on the couch reading uh, a magazine about... Uh, John Kennedy and uh, getting assassinated. And the last thing I said to her, which still hurts, because she sat there and she said, I hope I don't get assassinated. And I said, you don't worry about it. You're not the president of the United States. My daughter over there and my son, we all lived in the same house together. And they waited patiently on her to come home because she thought the sun, moon, stars, and stuff hung on those on those two. She, she, 
So they stand patiently in the summertime and wait on the porch for it. But when Alberta was not home the next morning, her mom and sister reported her missing. And later that afternoon, on August 5th, 1965, Alberta's body was found floating in the river beneath the Sherman-Minton Bridge in Louisville. The car she was driving that night was found close by and showed signs of a struggle. There were bloodstains and brick fragments inside. The autopsy determined Alberta's cause of death to be drowning, with blunt force trauma injuries. Investigators think Alberta took several blows to the head, possibly with a brick, which knocked her unconscious, and then she was thrown into the river and died by drowning. And here's something really creepy. Three years after her death, Alberta's purse was found hanging from the Sherman-Minton Bridge, the same one that she was found beneath. The purse was in perfect condition. Her wallet was inside with her ID, but no cash. Also found inside the purse was a partial dental plate, which I think is basically an older version of a denture, as well as several keychains. A lot of the information about Alberta's death comes from researcher Dr. Lee Remington, who came across Alberta's story about 50 years after her murder, and is now working on a biography. Dr. Remington collaborated with Alberta's family, and together they successfully obtained the original investigative file from Louisville PD about Alberta's case. That file contained records of over 400 interviews. Alberta's friend Gladys was one of the people interviewed, and she said that Alberta did come over that night, and that she left around 2 a.m. Also interviewed were witnesses, who claimed to have seen a woman attacked and dragged near the bridge where Alberta was found. There was also record of a fingerprint found somewhere on the car. In 2008, the FBI matched the print to a man who, by that time, was living in California. Since he was never declared a suspect, his name has not been released. The only description of him is that he is a black man, and he was 17 years old at the time of Alberta's murder. He said that he never met Alberta, and that he had nothing to do with the murder. He offered to take a polygraph test, which he did, and it ended up showing deception. But it's worth noting that polygraph tests are not fail-safe. They're actually more fool than proof. Also, the car Alberta was driving was a rental, and the man who matched the print said that, at this time in his life, he often hitchhiked in that area. It seems more likely to me that his print was in or on the car from catching a ride with a previous renter. I just have a hard time believing that Alberta, a civil rights icon who was challenging power and prosecuting men for domestic violence, would have been killed by a 17-year-old black boy. And there were likely more fingerprints that were found in the car. There was actually a lot of physical evidence taken from inside the car. But somehow, between 1989 and 2008, almost all of the evidence disappeared. I feel like this a cover-up in the police department. This fingerprint was one of the few pieces of physical evidence left. And after matching that fingerprint, the county prosecutor wrote a letter to the Louisville chief of police. The prosecutor wrote that it would be nearly impossible to prosecute Alberta's case regardless of the fingerprint, 
because all key witnesses and detectives who worked on the case were since deceased. But a week after Dr. Remington got access to the file and found this letter, she located one detective and several witnesses who were very much alive. In 2017, Alberta's case was officially reopened, thanks to pressure from her family and Dr. Remington. However, now, five years later, her case is still unsolved. It was a big deal, because she was very prominent in this community. And they never found her killer. That's Daryl Owens, Kentucky State Representative. He knew Alberta at the time she died. He was a young lawyer then, and they shared an office. Well, I, I, guess, I guess one of the things that my hope is that before I leave here, that somebody would figure out. And of course, the question is why? From my perspective, was a person that didn't have any enemies. She was very outgoing, very friendly. Uh, who did it? They haven't, they haven't been able to come up with that yet, so I'm hopeful that they will. Unfortunately, Representative Owens did not live to see justice for Alberta. He passed away earlier this year, on January 4th, 2022. The thought of someone keeping Alberta's purse perfectly intact for three years, and taking her denture out of her mouth and keeping it, and then hanging the purse back up, it's all pretty sick and twisted. Keeping her personal effects as trophies and then displaying them after three long years... It seems either personal or like some serial killer shit to me. In the years since her murder, there have basically been three theories floated. That Alberta was targeted either for her work with Muhammad Ali, for her work as a prosecutor, or for her work with the Independent Voters Association. However, the theory that she was killed because of her association with Muhammad Ali doesn't really seem to have any legs to stand on. The thought with that is that her killing would have been ordered by the Nation of Islam, and I'm no expert on the Nation of Islam, but from what I've read, that just doesn't seem likely. To me, what seems very likely is that Alberta was killed because of her work as a prosecutor, or with the IVA. Because the IVA had a huge impact on local politics as soon as it was established. I'm guessing the mayor and those city aldermen were not happy about being voted out Thanks in large part to black voters. The courthouse only had black people to be maids or janitors or elevated operators. So she went downtown and she told him she wanted to see some blacks in office beside doing maids and janitors. Yeah. Uh, she was going to vote them out. So they happened to ask her how many people did she have registered. And she said, it's for me to know and for you to find out at election time. Yeah. So it's not hard for me to believe that someone in power would have wanted Alberta dead. And also in her work as a prosecutor in domestic court, Alberta was often responsible for prosecuting white men in domestic violence cases. So it also wouldn't be hard for me to believe that one of these men Alberta prosecuted would have wanted her dead. Alberta's name and photo had a brief resurgence in current events with the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. A photo went mini-viral, 
of two National Guard trucks rolling down the street in downtown Louisville. A soldier is sitting in the back of the truck in full fatigues and a helmet, holding a gun. I'm not really sure what kind, because I didn't think the National Guard carried weapons, but anyway. Alberta's photo looms over the scene as a mural on the side of a building. The photo was posted with the caption, The Ancestors Are Watching. I want to remind you that Louisville is where Breonna Taylor was murdered, but to say that is honestly misrepresenting the situation. The Louisville PD were the ones to break down Brianna's door in a no-knock raid looking for somebody who didn't live there. They are the ones who stormed into Brianna's apartment without identifying themselves, causing Brianna's boyfriend Kenneth to fire his gun, since there's no way he could have known that those were cops and not home invaders. It was in Louisville that Brianna Taylor was shot eight times as she slept, killed in cold blood, and left alone to die slowly. She lived for several minutes after the shooting, but no attempts were made by the cops to get emergency medical attention for Brianna. They were too busy arresting Kenneth for the single shot he fired in self-defense. Kenneth was charged with attempted murder on a police officer and aggravated assault. Those charges were later dropped, but would they have been if Brianna's story did not have such a wide reach? To this day, there have been no consequences for the cops who murdered Brianna and tried to falsely imprison Kenneth. So, I don't trust the Louisville PD to investigate Alberta's murder. I don't want the Louisville PD investigating anyone's murder. I want someone investigating the murders that they, the Louisville cops, have committed. I'm, I'm a better person for having met with her. I'm a better person for having had work with her. And to spend some time with her. And uh, enjoyed a lot of time. A lot of jokes. A lot of laughing. Uh, we spent together. So I said, If she had lived, what would she be doing today? raising hail. <laughs> it's not hard to imagine the kind of change that Alberta could have brought to Kentucky. By the young age of 34, Alberta was already killing it. She made a huge impact in her short life. What would the next 10 years have looked like for Alberta? And what about the next 20 years? And how much of a difference could she have made for the people of Kentucky? who truly deserve better than this. Which is the legislative filibuster. Uh, What's your message for voters of color who are concerned that without the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, they're not going to be able to vote in the midterm? Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. A recent survey, uh, 94% of Americans thought it was easy to vote. Uh, This is not... A problem. Mitch McConnell, ladies and gentlemen. But first and foremost, Alberta was taken far too soon from her family. I didn't lose only a sister. I lost a best friend and a second mom. And uh, honestly, uh, for many years, if I wanted to do something, I didn't ask my mother. <laughs> I would divert. <laughs> and if I said yes, then I go to my mother and I said, 
Well, I'm Bertha said I can do it. <laughs> I could tell her any anything, and she never judged me. I don't care what it was. I could tell her. 